Let's open our Bibles, please, to just the very tail end of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, please. Acts 16, 35. Chapter 16, verse 35. Our last little bit in Philippi, and we'll journey along with the text to Thessalonica today. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Now as we read the account of what you did centuries ago in spreading the gospel, may we be taught, may we be encouraged, may we be built up, and if anyone needs to receive Christ, we pray through the preaching of your word that you would glorify and please yourself by opening their hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go right into it. Verse 35, chapter 16, picking up after everything that we've carefully and thoroughly explained over the last two weeks has brought us to this point. It's the morning after all that stuff happened that you can listen to the last two messages and read it for yourself. Let's just pick right up with the reading. Verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying... Let those men go. Sounds good, right? So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason's harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city 
when they heard these things. So, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. All right, that's as much as we'll undertake today. So, let's catch the last little bit in Philippi here first and talk about it a little bit. What is a magistrate? Well, the thing you need, a magistrate's a ruler, obviously, right? But the thing that's important about understanding that the magistrates were behind all this is that, as we stated a couple weeks ago, Philippi was what? How was Philippi unique from some of the other cities? Philippi was a Roman colony. And, and so the magistrates were Romans. And the magistrates should have known better than to treat Roman citizens the way that they treated Paul and Silas. They perhaps are uh, surprised by the fact when they learn here that they're Roman citizens because they're Jewish men from a distant, faraway place. But nevertheless, Paul and Silas are Romans, and that comes up. So what happens is, after everything that had happened that night with the midnight singing of the hymns and the earthquake and you know what happened with the jailer and, and, and Paul and Silas had actually been taken to the jailer's house and had their wounds treated and ate some food and, 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 then, and then they preached to them and everyone in the house got saved and baptized. Glorious, right? And then they went back to the prison. And so they're back in the prison and word comes the next morning the magistrates sent some of their officers and uh, these people, and you know, it's funny, there's a note in the New King James Bible and probably in, uh, probably in other Bibles too that that word officers is a generic way of saying literally rod bearers, right? Rods were instrument of, instruments of discipline and, and beating, frankly. So these were, like, these were like the toughs who did the dirty work of the magistrates, all right? So I, I don't think it's probably as noble as the word officer would imply. But when it was day, the magistrates sent these officers saying, let those men go, right? So they were probably quite accustomed to this practice of circumventing the law, because if you remember, Paul and Silas had not had any trial. They had simply accepted the words of a mob beat them to satisfy the mob, threw them in prison, and then the intention was, once the mob dies down, just come and let them go. Well, you know what? It brings up a point here, right? Because you know what Paul did, right? Paul is like, no, that's not the way it's going to go down. You know, it says the magistrates, the, 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 the keeper of the prison tells Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. And Paul said to them, what? Boy, that's great. Okay, we're going to go now. No. He said, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans and thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. And that word, no, indeed. The word indeed there is the same word that like in Old King James Bible gets translated verily. You know, like verily, verily, I say unto you. In other words, truly. It's a very, it's a very emphatic word. So the idea is like... Uh, Paul was saying this, if you were trying to colloquially modernize it, Paul is saying, they beat us, uncondemned Romans, and threw us into prison. 
publicly and now they're going to just quietly, secretly let us go? No way, right? Not going to happen. That, that's, that's the idea of uh, no indeed. The King James Version says nay verily, right? <laughs> that's a good way to say it, right? So uh, now it brings up an interesting point here because we know from Paul's writing, like in Romans 13, that Paul is a high respecter of civil authority, whether Christian or not, and commands Christians to be respectful of civil authority, right? Civil rulers, whether it's Emperor Nero or whoever it may be, an American president, whoever it may be, civil authorities have their authority from God. And the person who resists civil authority resists God. However, what do we see here? We see here that the coin has two sides, doesn't it? Paul says to people, respect the authority. But Paul says to the authorities, respect what you're supposed to do. Paul was big on that, right? You see it, it pops up in his writing, in his life. And while Paul, listen, Paul's a, 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 sometimes you get into these writings, you start talking about the people. And, and it's not, we're not glorifying people, right? It's God who's at work in him. But, but Paul is someone who is like, God has just given him a really great mind. And, and Paul is someone who God has just given him his spirit in such abundance the fullness of his spirit always seems to be at work so that there's just this great wisdom and there's this great sense of justice. And there was something that was very unjust about the fact that Paul tells Christians to obey the civil authorities and then the civil authorities turn around and what? Completely abuse their power. It's not fair to tell these guys obey the authorities without also telling the authorities you better do what's right with your authority before God. And they had not. You understand? They had not. And so Paul was not going to just walk away. Right? Now, he didn't... What's very interesting to observe was Paul did not press the thing all the way as far as it could go, did he? Like Paul, as a Roman citizen, had rights that were violated. And that's why it says what? When you read it, it says, Paul told them they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Look at this. Let them come themselves and get us out. And when he said that to them, now remember, who did he send? He sent the guy with the rods. You know, I want to resist saying thugs. It's probably not that bad. But, but he sent, you know, he, they, sent, they sent their, you know, their beat them up guys, whatever your word is for that. And Paul says right back to them, you go back to them and you tell them to come here themselves and get us out. Right? Now look what the reaction is. That's why it says, and the officers told these words to the magistrates. So number one, what? These officers who were probably big, strong, tough, not very conscientious guys with weapons, they heeded what Paul said. And then they went back to the magistrates and, they, and it says they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Why? Because they were Romans too. And they understood we messed up here. They were probably accustomed to getting away with this, right? There was probably like 
a systematic injustice that they were able to just like do whatever they want with their tufts and wield whatever they wanted to do. But here comes Paul with the wisdom of God, the mind of God, and the spirit of Christ, and seeing that injustice and saying, no, 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 no. He wasn't calling for rebellion, right? He wasn't organizing protest marches. He wasn't going to go and burn down the magistrate's house, right? But he did say, we're Romans. We were entitled to some justice and you didn't give it. You go back to those magistrates and you tell them to come here themselves and get them out. And when the magistrates heard that, what? They were afraid. You know, because guess what? Just like those officers with the rods had people over them, those magistrates had people over them. And Philippi was a Roman colony. So the people who would have been over those magistrates would have been high-ranking Romans, and that would have been a lot of trouble. That would have been a very bad day for these guys if Paul had pressed it all the way. Now, Paul doesn't press it further, right? What happens? I like this. Here's the spirit of wisdom. I want you to see this. There's not, there's not a carnal spirit in Paul here. This is not Paul just getting vengeance. This is the, this is the spirit of God at work in Paul. And he knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord. So he's not after that. He's also not interested in wasting a bunch of time. Hello? He's not interested in wasting a bunch of time by getting himself all wrapped up in some civil controversy. He has gospel preaching to do. He has disciple making to do. He has worshiping God to do. He has introducing the masses to Jesus Christ to do. So he's not going to get all dragged down into it either. You note that? Do you, know, do you see the good example in all this? He's not going to swim around in a bunch of civil matters. But he's also not going to let it go. And so you know what he's going to do? As the Spirit of God leads him, he's going to take it just as far as it works out for the church. Watch what he does. It's fantastic. So they came and they pleaded with him, brought them out, and asked them to depart from the city. Okay. Now look at verse 40. Everyone look at verse 40. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 40, following with me carefully. So they went out of the prison and they left the city. No, right? So they went out of the city, and what did they do? They went back to Lydia's house. Why did they go back to Lydia's house? Well, what does it say? When they had seen what? The brethren. This is the first time in this chapter that a reference is made to brethren being at Lydia's house. Before now, all we know is Lydia got saved and her family got saved. Right? Maybe the slave girl eventually got saved. But now we're going back to Lydia's house and there's brethren there. There's a church there. Here's what I think and a couple of other commentaries I read say, say the same thing. Um, so if I'm wrong, we're all wrong together. But listen, I think what Paul saw was by pressing this injustice just so far, what would it do? It would keep these magistrates and their toughs in this tough Roman colony who were probably accustomed to perverting justice to whatever end they wanted to, it would cause them to keep their hands off these people in this church. 
And I just love that the wisdom of God. Listen, it's the Spirit of God that's at work in Paul. That's the part. It's not stated, but it's there. You see, Paul could make a big stink out of this and could rally the people of the town to rise up against the magistrates. And he could make some big thing out of it. He didn't just let the injustice go, but he didn't like he didn't let it consume him either. It was like, all right, good, I'll leave. I'm going back to Lydia's house first. And he encouraged them, the brethren, the brethren. A little church had started to grow in Philippi, and Paul had to leave. Listen, it's characteristic of Paul's earlier ministry that when he went to places, and you're going to see it happen in Thessalonica in a minute too, when Paul went places, he often was not able to stay there very long, right? So Paul goes into Philippi, and he's not there very long, right? Uh, it goes on for a while, but, but he preaches and preaches, and people are getting saved, right? But then very abruptly and suddenly he needs to go. You saw it in Thessalonica as well. It literally says, it literally says in chapter 17 there in the first passage that he taught them for three Sabbaths. That's three weeks. So Paul's in Thessalonica for three weeks and then very abruptly he has to leave. And that abruptness and the troubling of his spirit that that brought actually shows up when he writes 1 Thessalonians to them. But this was, this was very characteristic of Paul's ministry that it would be quick. And so Paul has concern for the churches. And he writes that in his letters. I have great concern for all of the churches, he says at one point. Right? And so what Paul sees here is, you know what? An opportunity, I think, to like bring a little civil peace for this young, fledgling church. And so instead of leaving, he goes back to them. And he comforts them. And he speaks with them. It says literally, they encouraged them. Then they departed. So Paul, look, look at the example. Paul was a big proponent of respect of civil authority. But he was also a big proponent of that civil authority that's getting that respect, doing what they're supposed to do. Right? So he's very anti-corruption. But then thirdly, what? He's not going to get entangled in the affairs of this world. You're not going to get a big long letter in your Bible about how the Roman government is evil. No such thing exists. Instead, back to the church. Bless the church. Encourage the church. On to the next town. Because there's gospel preaching to do. This passage of scripture, church, this little part at the end of chapter 16, which seems like nothing, is actually a tremendous encouragement to Christians of all days and all ages and all places to what? Remember why we're here. We're not called to fight every earthly battle. We are called to preach the gospel and make disciples. Along the way, do we have to speak up and say a thing here or there? Do you have to put your foot down about a thing here or there? Yes, but you don't get embattled in it. As Paul said to Timothy... No soldier gets entangled in the affairs of this life. He wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul did not get himself entangled. Good balance, right? There's balance there. So Paul is like, Christians, obey the civil authorities because their authority is from God. Civil authorities, you follow the law. 
you, you bring justice to people, right? But then, superseding all of it, I am here to preach the gospel. I am here to make disciples. I am here to love and bless and encourage God's people. So he encourages the church and then on to the next town to continue to preach. By the way, Paul loved this church. This was the first church in Europe that was formed. The Church of Philippi. First ever church in Europe. In history, it was the church at Philippi that met at Lydia's house. And Paul wrote them a letter, right? And Paul wrote some beautiful things in that letter. And it would be fine if I just stood here and read the entire letter of Philippians to you. He doesn't write the letter until much later, right? Years go by and he's in prison in Rome. He had, he had uh, passed through Philippi again because when you read like in chapter 20, I think it is, of Acts, as he's going through the cities and famously he's taking that collection from the Gentile churches for the impoverished church at Jerusalem, Philippi is one of the places that he stops again to, to receive part of that collection. But eventually Paul ends up, after all of that, as a prisoner in Rome, and he writes the book of Philippians, which is addressed to this church. And just a little portion of it for you, just so you can hear the beauty of these words and the relationship that Paul maintained with this beautiful church. Listen to this. Philippians, in the opening of the book, says, this is Paul writing to these Christians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time, every time I think of you, I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for them. Thank you for those brothers and sisters in Philippi. Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Ready? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart in as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's what, listen, all those years later, he still came back in his writing to this church in Philippi. Later in that letter to Philippians, he says to them, he refers to them as my beloved and longed for brethren. And he also calls them true companion. That's, that's how he speaks to the people of this church. And so you see that wonderful love among those believers. All right. Ready to journey with Paul now from Philippi to Thessalonica? Shake your head yes. Here we go. Chapter 17 now in verse 1. Let's unpack this. So, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, which they're obviously very Greek-sounding names, 
and their, their towns that would be in what today geographically would be Greece. They were, they were still very close to, but, but inside Macedonia back in the day. Um, but even, even ancient Thessalonica is part of modern day Greece. All right. So, oh, by the way, can I just point this out? Just insert this in here. Uh, all of this started with Paul having a vision of a Macedonian man saying, Coming over, come over and help us. Come over and help us, right? Look, look, look. Now, you, here's what you need to see. So God called him through that vision to cross over the Aegean Sea and go to Macedonia to witness. And so far, what we've seen is all kinds of trouble, right? But what you don't see in the beginning of chapter 17 is Paul, who has been beaten and has been unjustly imprisoned. You don't see him turning around and going back, do you? What do you see? You see him pressing forward. What did Paul say to the Philippian church in his letter? We press, we leave what's behind behind and we press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was Paul, man. Let's go. What did Jesus say? He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Here is Paul pressing forward, pressing forward. Amen. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and be obedient in the Lord. Even when things get tough, even when things get hard. Things get tough, things get hard for me. I struggle, I pray. I wonder, Lord, do you really even want me in this? Do you want me doing this? You know, you struggle, you battle, you get down. You know what? You get up, you keep going. Because of who we serve. Because who we serve never stops. Who we serve never relents. His promises never fail. And he knows the very number of hairs on your head. So you keep going. Yeah, praise the Lord is right. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, which are like west, southwest of Philippi, they come to Thessalonica. Now here, we're told something different about Philippi. Philippi being a Roman colony, Thessalonica being more of an open city. So there's much more diversity in Thessalonica. And we're told there's a synagogue there. And apparently it's a pretty good-sized synagogue, which I'll point out in a while. I'll just point it out now. It says that, if you skip ahead to verse 4, when he preached at this synagogue, we're told that a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas, which would seem to indicate that the synagogue was large. The synagogue, they had a significant Jewish community, and they had a significant Greek-slash-Gentile followership in the synagogue, like we saw back in Antioch of Pisidia, right? And we'll turn to that passage in a minute. Um, so now, whereas in Philippi, it was just a few women meeting by the river because they didn't have enough people to make a synagogue, now in Thessalonica, there's a seemingly big and thriving synagogue. Then Paul... Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That description 
of what his message in the synagogue was is a nice reminder for us of what the gospel is, right? Amen? What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is, about, is the message of Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he did. And here's, here's the, the important part. The scriptures. Here, no New Testament yet. The Old Testament scriptures all point to Jesus as being the Messiah and the way of salvation. Right? So Jesus is what? The biblically promised Messiah. Right? Biblically promised God-fulfilled Messiah. He is the Son of God. What did He do? He suffered. Messiah wasn't just going to come and establish the kingdom. He was going to suffer first. And He was going to die. And then He was going to rise from the dead. And then you have all of this preaching of the gospel, building His kingdom. And then one day He's going to come back and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Right? So it's Jesus. Here's who He is and here's what He did. And it's our scriptures that we read in the synagogues every week that have year after year after year after year pointed us to Jesus. And I'm here today to tell you that this Jesus of Nazareth is the one. That's a nice little picture of what the gospel message would have been. I want to be reminded of how Paul... I thought about like going into the Old Testament. I did this before. I thought about going back to the Old Testament and pulling out some verses to read to you again, which I have before, uh, that, that clearly point to Jesus. But then I thought to myself, let's just be reminded of how Paul would do this. I mean, it says that for three Sabbaths, oh, and let's make a point about the three Sabbaths before we go on. That means he was there for three weeks, right? And, and three consecutive Sabbaths. Now, you think to yourself, that's a really short time, like I explained before, to be in one place, preach the gospel, establish a church, create a tumult, and then get out of there and go on to the next place, right? But actually, I would submit to you that three weeks is a pretty long time, right? Three weeks is, listen, what did he do? He walked into a synagogue and preached that Jesus was the Messiah. He walked, not just that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, but what? Here's a big controversial issue for the Jews. Not just that Jesus, this Galilean carpenter, was the Messiah, but what? The fact that Messiah died. That's a big problem for how the Jews would have understand the mission of Messiah. To this day, that's a big problem. Messiah doesn't die. Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom. Messiah comes and reestablishes the throne of David. Messiah comes and Israel rules again. Messiah doesn't come and die. That's still a view among Jews today. Right? So Paul goes into the town, and look, he goes into the place, and he doesn't just walk into the marketplace. He goes into the synagogue and stands in the synagogue and proclaims Messiah came and he died. And the scripture says that he needed to die. That was his mission. And then on the third day he rose from the dead. May I say to you that he didn't just go there once and do that. He didn't even just go there, back, you know, sneak his way back in a second week and do that. He went three weeks in a row to a synagogue a synagogue of the Jews proclaiming that Christ came and died and rose from the dead. 
I say three weeks is a pretty long time to be able to do that, right? I mean, what I say is, God must have really opened some doors there for people to get saved. And he did. And he did. You follow me? It's glorious what happened in Thessalonica. I'll read you a little bit of 1 Thessalonians in a moment. But first, turn with me. Take your Bibles. Turn to Acts. Uh, go back to Acts chapter 13. And I think it's verse 13. should be just a couple of pages back. Let's just be reminded by going back to Paul's first missionary journey of how Paul did this. How did Paul speak to a synagogue audience and explain to them from the Old Testament that Messiah had to die and rise from the dead and that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah and salvation for Jew and Gentile alike is only in him. Acts chapter 13, starting verse 16. 16. So Paul, it says, stood up and emotioning with his hand, he said this, Men of Israel and you who fear God. You remember this, right? It wasn't that long ago we preached on this. So men of Israel and you who fear God, that's an acknowledgement of the mixed audience. Men of Israel, that's the Jews in the room. And you who fear God, that's the Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, who are in the room, in the synagogue. Listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. So what does he do? He takes them back. Here's how he's going to show this Jewish and Jewish God-fearing audience. This is how he's going to show it. He's going to take them back to their history. God chose us, chose our fathers, exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. History. Let me start off by telling you the history of our people. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges. There you go. There's a book of Joshua. Now here's the book of Judges. For about 450 years until Samuel. So now here comes Samuel, the prophet. And actually taking him through the Old Testament, like chronologically, historically. Afterward, they asked for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed... According to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. There's the transition from Old Testament to Jesus, right? Takes them through the Old Testament history all the way up to the appointment, the anointing of David as king. Points out that the Bible, the scriptures teach that Messiah would be a descendant of David. And now he's at the point where it's like Jesus is that one. After John had first preached, that's John the Baptist, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? 
I'm not he, but behold, there comes one after me, who's the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So now we've gone from the beginning of Israel all the way up to the ministry of John the Baptist. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Again, that's the mixed audience. The sons of Abraham were the Jews, those who fear God, those were the Gentiles in the audience. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, right? In other words, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was there, uh, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Brilliant statement, right? This would have been, I think, the first moment where the Jewish audience and the God-fearing Gentile audience in Thessalonica and at Antioch and Pisidia would have said, hmm, he's got a point there, right? The, but what he's saying is, our religious leaders in Jerusalem, by condemning Jesus, were actually fulfilling what the prophets said would happen to Jesus. So there's your first, like, aha moment, if you will, for the, uh, for the audience in the synagogue. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate, that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, uh, the crucifixion, the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen by many, for many by day. Uh, no. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So he's saying to them, what? He was crucified, he was laid in a grave, he was raised from the dead, and lots of people saw him, and they are going around and telling everyone that he was risen from the dead. These are eyewitnesses. That's where the term witnessing comes from. When we talk about witnessing to someone, we are sharing testimony of something that we know with someone else. The early, the earliest, first spreaders of the gospel were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The apostles were all eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. The original 11, and then Paul as one born out of due time that Jesus had revealed himself to on the road of Damascus. But they were all eyewitnesses. What about us? We're witnesses, but we're not eyewitnesses, right? We're witnesses of the power of God at work and saving other people. We're witnesses of those who have received the apostolic commands, the apostles' doctrine, the words, the writings of the New Testament, the writings concerning Jesus. So we're witnesses in a slightly different way. We're not eyewitnesses, but we are witnesses of the power of God in that it has touched us, and we know the writings of the apostles so we can share these things with other people. You follow? This is how God reaches people and saves people and has been for 2,000 years. Amen. We're part of it. The, the, the sermon that Paul preached that I'm reading to you, we're part of the same ministry. We're the fruit of that ministry in an indirect, separated by many degrees in time way. But we are the fruit of that ministry and we're still reading the sermon that he preached in the synagogue today, 2,000 years later. Passing it along. Passing it along. Hallelujah. What an honor to be part of that. What an honor to sit here and listen. What an honor to stand here and worship and praise Him. What an honor to pray about things that are on our hearts. What an honor to have this church and this ministry to share in together. 
What a distinct privilege of grace and honor that God has bestowed upon us, that he has called us to be a continuance of the things that we're reading about in the scriptures. Wow, praise God. Come on, Christians, get the right perspective on this. Church isn't this thing that you go to on Sundays when you don't have anything else to do. Eh, I don't feel like going. To, eh, nah, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be part. I don't like that. Nah. You are privileged to be part of something that God has been doing since the Holy Spirit first came and indwelt the first believers with those fiery tongues that sat on them and they spoke with tongues and Peter preached that first sermon and 3,000 people got saved. We are part of that. The book of Acts is our history. Get the right perspective on it. It's not this weird, ancient, removed thing that we're trying to figure out. We're in it. Get up. Go forward. Be in it, Christians. Ooh. Now here comes... I'm still in Acts 13, okay? God raised him from the dead. He was seen by many days, for many days, by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, good news, gospel. We proclaim gospel to you. That promise which was made to our fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. You know, we're the children of the fathers that God made the promises to, and now he's fulfilling it for us. In that, he has raised up Jesus. Now, at that point, remember Paul is like trying to introduce this Jewish audience to the fact that the Messiah needed to die and needed to rise and that Jesus is that one. Now he's reached a point where it's like, if I'm going to continue talking, I better show them what the Bible says, right? And that's exactly what he does. As it you're still following me, right? Acts 13, we're in verse 33. You ought to know this. You ought to know this. You ought to be able to flip to this on your own in an instant and realize, yeah, this is where it all started. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ah, Psalm 2 shows that the Messiah is the son of God, right? And that he raised him from the dead... No more, to, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's from Isaiah 55 to show that he is a descendant of David. And, this is the big one from Psalm 16. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. A person dies, they're buried in the ground, and their body decays. But that psalm which is written from the perspective of David, but is obviously expressing the perspective of the later David, the greater David, the son of David, the Messiah. You follow that? If you read Psalm 16, it's wonderful to read Psalm 16, and then you get, it's like verse 10, I think. Your eyes get onto that verse. And you realize that he's talking about Messiah, and he talks about Messiah not being left in the grave, not being allowed to see corruption. Well, if that's true, then two things must be true. He must die. 
Because you can't say, I'm not going to leave your soul to be corrupted. That, that demands that he died and he was buried. And the fact that I'm not going to leave it there, demands that he rose from the dead. So in that saying, in Psalm 16, Paul is proving to this Jewish audience in the synagogue that Messiah, indeed, his mission was to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And Jesus is that Messiah. Many of us witnesses saw him and we're going all over all the world to tell the news. You can read the rest of that for yourself. Now go back, to, go back up to 16. That's what he said in Antioch and Pisidia. My guess, because Luke didn't write down exactly what he said for those three weeks in Thessalonica, three full, I mean, and pretty thorough stuff too. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. So, you know, it was long. You think I'm wrong. Eh? You think I go on for a while. There's a passage coming up in Acts where Paul is speaking to some people in somebody's house. And he's like, it's nighttime, and they're up on the third floor in the house, so it's hot and everybody's groggy and everything else. What was the guy's name? Eutychus? What was, what was his name? But he actually gives the guy's name. There's a guy sitting in the window who falls out the window because he falls asleep. He's sitting in the window trying to get some, ear, some air as he's listening to Paul preach, and he falls asleep and he falls out the window and he dies. And Paul runs down and runs outside and lays down and heals him. You know? But, but that, that, you think I talk long, right? I mean, Paul literally put someone to sleep and the guy fell out a third-story window and died. Count your blessings, brothers and sisters. A little perspective. Maybe don't complain so much. You, don't, you, you never complain. I'm making light of it all. All right. So listen, so Paul, Paul does this for three weeks and Luke doesn't record one word that he said, is my point, Right? Why? Because he probably did basically the same thing that he did when he was in Antioch and Pisidia. So Paul's already written the sermon down, Luke's already written the sermon down. No need to really write it down again, right? So it's probably basically the same thing. So Paul's as custom was, goes into them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That's where I'll leave it for today. And we'll come back to it next week. But listen, let me just say this. You just got what the gospel essentially is. Messiah's mission was to come and fulfill everything the prophets said about him. He's the descendant of David the son of David, the Messiah. And his mission was to die as a curse on a tree. Cursed is him who hangs on a tree. He died as a curse on a tree, bearing the wrath of God against the sins of everyone. God's love for the world is that he gave Jesus and Jesus died for our sins. They buried him, and on the third day he rose from the dead. So, so Messiah's mission was to suffer and die and to rise from the dead, and Jesus of Nazareth, listen, is that Messiah. You're sitting here today, you're watching this from wherever you are online, 
You need Jesus. Just like this synagogue audience got it for three weeks, you've been getting it from me for almost 19 years and others. But whatever, it, however long it is, if you need Christ, today is the day of salvation. I pray that God opens your heart to believe because listen to me, there's no religious ceremony. There's no special prayer to pray. There's no works or baptisms or rites or rituals or anything like that. The gospel is this. Jesus did what he did. He died for your sins. He was buried. On the third day he rose from the dead. Believe. That's it. Humble yourself. You know, humble yourself. Acknowledge your real need for him. That you've sinned. You've broken God's holy laws. God gave his laws, surprise, surprise, God actually gave his laws to show us that we're sinners. That's what God's, you know, you shall not lie teaches me that I'm a liar. Because I can't say that I've never lied, right? God's law teaches you that you're a sinner. Humbly acknowledge your sinfulness before God. Turn to Jesus and listen, believe Believe. God, please open people's hearts that they might believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our Father in heaven, as we leave this account kind of midstream, I pray that enough was said today to edify, build up and encourage your people and to bring to salvation anyone whose hearts you open. May you be exalted and glorified through the preaching of your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.